I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Tom McKinnon. And this is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, September 6th, 2011. Coming up, will the astronauts have to abandon the space station? And we talk about the future of wind power with a local entrepreneur. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Humanity may be a little less human than you think, according to new research from the University of Arizona. Just last year, DNA from Neanderthal bones proved that humans interbred with Neanderthal populations in Europe over 30,000 years ago. And now, a team led by Arizona researcher Michael Hammer has found evidence that humans were interbreeding with other hominid species thousands of years earlier while still confined to Africa. It's impossible to do a direct DNA comparison with these earlier hominid species since all the bones are fossilized. So instead, Hammer's team used a computer simulation to predict what genetic remnants might be left in the DNA of today's humans if interbreeding had occurred. Then they compared the patterns from the simulation with DNA from living Africans. Several criteria indicate that a a gene might be a remnant from interbreeding. For instance, a DNA sequence might be radically different from the ones found in modern humans. And a gene variation that stretches across a long section of a chromosome is likely a relatively recent addition. There hasn't been time for the gene to be chopped up and moved around through many generations of reproduction. When Hammer's team studied the DNA of living humans, they found that ancient genes from other hominid species probably account for 2 to 3 percent of today's human genome. Hammer says the next step is to look for evolutionary benefits from the ancient genes. The research is published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Cellulose, cellulose-based materials are the ideal feedstock to make biofuels. They don't compete with food, they require relatively small inputs of water and fertilizer to grow, and they're often available as a waste product from agriculture or forestry. However, it is notoriously difficult to break down things like wood or corn stalks into simpler molecules that can be turned into a fuel, like ethanol. After all, that's one reason we build our houses out of wood and not blocks of sugar. Researchers at Mississippi State University think they may have a line on an improved process to decompose woody plant material. And it's inspired by the backside of a panda bear. That's right, panda poop. Panda, whose diet is almost entirely bamboo, have evolved microbes in their gut that can break down tough cellulosic materials, much like termites can do. The work was reported by Ashley Brown and her team at Mississippi State University at last week's meeting of the American Chemical Society here in Denver. Pandas don't have a multi-chamber stomach like cows, so it's basically in one end and out the other. So anything residing there to break down woody materials has to be very efficient, says Candace Williams, a graduate student on Brown's team. The scientists are hoping to extract enzymes from these panda gut microbes and then use them in bioreactors to to digest cellulosic biomass. Preliminary preliminary work suggests that a panda enzyme, the panda enzymes are at least as efficient as those from termites. 
And there are a couple of science events coming up in the next week. Friday evening at the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Juliet Alprin, the Washington Post's environmental reporter, will read from her book, Demon Fish Travels Through the Hidden World of Sharks. The book provides a global look at the often surprising and inexplicable ways people and cultures relate to and engage with the ocean's top predator. Juliet Alprin will read from and sign her book on Friday, September 9th at 7.30 at the Tattered Cover in Denver at 2526 East Colfax Road. Also, she will be speaking Thursday on the topic Global Warming and the 2012 Election, the new wedge issue. That talk will be on the CU Boulder campus in Eaton Humanities, room 150, Thursday, September 8th at 5.30 p.m. And on Monday at the Denver Cafe Sci, Ted Scambos, a senior research scientist from the National Snow and Ice Data Center, will give a talk entitled Antarctica in the Palm of Your Hand, a science tour of the ice sheet. The talk is on Monday, September 12th, starting at 6.30 p.m. in the Mercantile Room at the Wincoop Brewing Company. It's free and everyone is welcome. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. Now that NASA has retired the shuttle fleet, what is the impact on the future of human spaceflight and the International Space Station? The BBC's John Stewart with Science in Action reports on recent events and their implications. At the moment, only Russia has the capability to ferry people to and from the International Station. And they have just delayed the next manned mission after an unmanned crashed. Well, we're joined... And John, Russia grounding their fleet of soil could have a big impact then. Soil for quite some time has been given the goal of, of taking a new space station and the, the capsule on the top of soil. At the moment, only Russia has the capability to ferry people to and from the International Station. And they have just delayed the next manned mission after an unmanned crashed. Well, we're joined astronauts who are on the station. Well, sorry for that. We were having technical difficulties with our BBC's Science in Action, so we will try to play that again in the next show. So, coming up, we now have an interview with a guest in the studio. Science Show. I'm Tom McKinnon. 
Today we're going to take a look at the future of wind energy. We have with us in the studio Sandy Butterfield. Sandy is the CEO and co-founder of Boulder Wind Power. Prior to starting this venture, uh, Sandy spent over 24 years at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, or NREL, in the National Wind, uh, Wind Test Center. Sandy, welcome to How on Earth. Okay, Sandy, uh, let's start by having us uh, uh, tell you about, tell us about our, our, your new company, Boulder Wind Power. Uh, what sort of product do you make? Well, it's, uh, it's interesting. We, when, when we think about wind energy, we think about those great big rotors out there turning, and, uh, and we don't think too much about how the, the mechanics behind that rotor and how we take uh, mechanical energy, that slow-moving, slow-rotating aerodynamic energy and turn it into electricity. But behind that rotor is usually a great big gearbox. And the gearbox is a, uh, a way of taking slow, high-torque energy and turning it into high-speed, uh, low-torque energy, electrical energy. Those gearboxes drive generators, and the generators connect to the grid, and, and that's how we convert electrical or aerodynamic energy into electrical energy. Boulder Wind Power, though, is working on something that will eliminate the gearbox. In past, uh, I would have to say, I've been breaking these gearboxes my entire life, my entire wind energy career, which has been about 35 years. And uh, when I was working at NREL over the last uh, last three years, I led a project that looked that was uh, focused on attempting to understand why the design of reliable 20-year life gearboxes was such a challenge. And um, uh, and one of the things that came from that was well, there's an awful lot of things that came from it, but I, I uh, one of the realizations was that a very simple way to do this is to use a direct drive generator, no gearboxes. And uh, but these are generally very expensive, very costly generators that have to spin at the same speed as the rotor. And so, uh, our particular version of this is very light, much lighter than a, um, a standard direct drive generator, and even lighter than a gear-driven uh, system. So, when my co-founders presented this to me, I realized that this was a breakthrough for wind energy. And so I. Uh, the easiest way to make gearboxes more reliable is to eliminate them. So, uh, so we started uh, Boulder Wind Power, and we are offering this. Uh, we're developing this this direct drive generator and offering it to the wind turbine manufacturers of the world. Hmm. And so, so it's a case of uh, necessity is the mother of invention, I guess. Huh? Absolutely, okay. that's right. It's right. Uh, this is really the holy grail of drivetrains for wind turbines. And uh, when will your uh, your first product uh, be deployed in the field? Well, we have a proof-of-concept generator, 3-megawatt generator, uh, ready to go probably in the next three weeks. It's being made up in Montana. Uh, our design team has spent uh, the last year uh, going through all of the electromagnetics and the electrical design and the mechanical design, and and uh, that system is uh, highly optimized now and uh, ready to be demonstrated. So we're we're spending a lot of money up there in, in uh, Montana, and eventually we'll be building these things down here. But eventually the partners that we uh, we make in the wind turbine industry will be manufacturing the majority of the components. We will manufacture the things that are really secret to uh, the, the – or maybe I should say the key to this um, uh, this technology. So, okay. Your, your website describes your product as a as a permanent magnet generator. Uh, do you anticipate any problems with with the availability of the rare earth elements that that go into these magnets? The, good question. The uh, the rare earth magnets have are uh, have been uh, the pricing is controlled and the and the majority of the supply is controlled by China. 
Uh, however, China controls only 30% of the world's uh, resources here and uh, other places in the world, uh, not the least of which is Mountain Pass in California, uh, have at least 15% of the, uh, of the known resources. And there are other places such as Australia and Malaysia. But just speaking about, uh, about the U.S. and uh, supply, Molly Corp., which is a company that's just south here in Denver, controls uh, or owns Mountain Pass, and they are ramping up uh, new production th- uh, there. And so <clears throat> uh, only 10 years ago, China began to really enter into this um, uh, uh, permanent magnet supply, a rare earth magnet supply, and they dominated it because, uh, because well, because of the way they approached it. They uh, low uh, low labor costs, and uh, and frankly, they use some fairly uh, 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 environmentally uh, hazardous processing means. But Molycorp is bringing on a whole new set of supply chain uh, uh, or processing that guarantees to make the whole process much more efficient and much much more environmentally friendly. They have a closed loop system. So this is a long way of saying we need to revamp the supply chain in the U.S. Right now, it's only China, and therefore China is is trying to control the market for their own needs. Uh, and what we need to do is bring on these other these other supply chains. This will all happen in the next two to three years. And when that happens, the price of uh, rare earth magnets will come down to something sane like it was uh, only a year ago actually only nine months ago. So we're confident that um, uh, rare earth magnets will, uh, will once again be uh, uh, very cost effective. We're not the only ones in the market for rare earth magnets. There's a lot of people out there that need the same product. Um, electric vehicles, for example, is, uh, is another one. So, so we expect that the, um, the cost of these magnets will come down as a new supply chain is is uh, is developed, and we have quite a few reports kind of predicting the same thing. And you've already seen a turn in the cost of these rare earth magnets are beginning to come down again. Okay, uh, but let's move on to talk about the the wind industry in general. But before we do that, let's get to a topic near and dear to your heart: the uh, NRL uh, Wind Test Center. Uh, you've talked about the gear your gearbox work there, but can you just uh, highlight a few of the major innovations of the last uh, decade or so? I understand there's quite a bit in aerodynamics and other things. Hmm. Yeah, NREL is a is a wonderful place for me to work. It was I worked there for 24 years, and I did a lot of aerodynamics research and some structural dynamics research. The team there is really uh, quite skilled, and they um, uh, they do a lot of things that don't ne- normally kind of hit the press because they 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 build the analytical tools that designers use to innovate. And so, in addition to kind of innovating technology, they they help other companies private industry uh, with their own design skills. So they build um, uh, structural dynamics models, uh, aeroelastic models. uh, They build controls models. uh, And they also do quite a lot of testing. Uh, So, for example, these large, large blades that you see, these uh, 50-meter-long blades, all have to be structurally tested. NREL is one of the few facilities in the world that can test, structurally test, some of these large blades. So if you think about a, um, uh, a fiberglass blade that's like a diving board that's half the length of a football field, these blades have to be tested, and we like to test them to destruction. I speak the royal we, you know, as if I'm still with NREL. But NREL was one of the groups that pioneered this, the uh, uh, 
test to destruction. And if you've ever been around one of these things, when they've loaded them up until they finally break, you'll understand how important it is to sort of understand how these things fail. So they've innovated in in, uh, testing of large structures. They've also innovated in dynamometer testing, testing of drivetrains like these large gearboxes that I mentioned before. And they've also innovated in uh, in uh, analytical approaches. So they're also a leader in utility integration. So, uh, for example, we talk a lot about how difficult would it be to integrate large quantities of wind energy into the utility grid without destabilizing the grid. Well, this is a topic that's uh, been much studied by the utilities and some of the experts in NREL. And so some of the groups there um, are now... Uh, leading the industry or leading the, the, the country uh, in, um, uh, in analyzing just what that impact is. Uh, Brian Parsons is the name of one gentleman who's leading some of that work. So there are lots of, lots of things like that but, um, uh, that, that en- NREL has innovated in, and yet it's not the kind of flashy, uh, not generally the kind of flashy news, news uh, headline that you'd see. But there's, uh, there's some very talented people down there enabling others to innovate. Okay. Uh, wind energy is a, a technology with, with few downsides, but at the end of the day, what's going to matter to a lot of people is the cost of power to the grid. So so what is it going to cost us, say, per kilowatt hour if we're taking uh, wind from a, a pretty good site, like, like let's mm-hmm. say, eastern Colorado? Yeah, another great question. The price of wind energy has fluctuated uh, over the years, but it's been steadily coming down over the last uh, last five to six years. Uh, but with the advent of the Chinese manufacturing and, and really in, uh, in China an oversupply of, of wind turbines, the price of wind turbines has come down uh, to as low as it's ever been. So uh, today, if, if, uh, if in wind farms, uh, sort of in the 200 megawatt range, uh, wind energy can be produced at three cents per kilowatt hour. That's with the uh, government subsidy or with the uh, PTC, the production tax credit. But without subsidies, it's still $0.05 cents per kilowatt hour. There are multiple reports coming out now that show that that's the lowest cost of any kind of energy. It's lower than uh, lower cost than gas, lower cost than coal. Uh, and so we think that if, if that continues, then wind energy will, will be the lowest cost option. Uh, there's a report produced by Lazard. Uh, it's a uh, financial institution in New York that's uh, that's uh, documented all of these different relative costs, and uh, so th- that's one of several that are coming out now. Okay, so that's good news. It's uh, it's such cheap power. The, the flip side of that is the value of the power, of course. Uh, uh, when being intermittent, um, you know it, that. Three cents per kilowatt hour. Well, it can't command the price that, say, a gas turbine could that could deliver power at any time. Do you see any storage technologies coming down the pike that could increase the value of wind power to a utility? There's multiple kinds of storage. The uh, short-term storage, uh, and and when we talk about utility integration, we have to speak about different time frames. That is, how much, how long do you, or how much time do you need to be able to supply energy? So over, over seconds, you can use uh, uh, batteries and supercapacitors and several other high-energy batteries are being researched now. Uh, but if you want to store energy for an eight-hour period, that's a huge quantity of megawatt hours or energy storage. And so uh, people are still looking at uh, compressed air, uh, pumped hydro, uh, and various kinds of, of uh, kind of traditional energy storage. 
and I haven't seen any huge breakthroughs in the longer-term storage. But frankly, to uh, to balance the system, which is what the the dispatchers have to do on an hour-to-hour, minute-to-minute, second-to-second basis, they have a variety of tools at their disposal. And natural gas is actually quite good because uh, they can have some spinning reserve that they can call on to balance the system. Uh, and and with wind energy, if you if you have uh, wind spread over a large geographical area, uh, it tends to reduce the fluctuations in uh, in power, uh, and so it's actually uh, a lot more stable than people might imagine, and it can be uh, compensated for by spinning reserve. And spinning reserve is something that's necessary f- to keep the system stable anyway. So at a cost of less than half a cent per kilowatt hour, people have realized that they can keep the system stabilized and even with uh, 20 to 30% wind energy penetration. But in Europe, uh, in Denmark, in Spain, in Germany, those countries have all run on 60 to 70 and sometimes 100% wind energy for hours at a time by uh, cleverly dispatching power and trading power with adjacent control areas like Germany and um, and uh, uh, Sweden and Norway in the case of Denmark. So I think that uh, uh, dispatchers are understanding how to run the system very stably without huge amounts of energy storage. That's one of the topics that NREL has been researching for some time. Okay, Sandy, there's a... The, of course, environmental benefits of uh, wind, but there's some perceived environmental downsides. Um, uh, sound would be one, aesthetics, but perhaps the one that gets the most press are the bird and uh, bat kills. Uh, is that is that a real issue, or is it? Um... Uh, it's, uh, th- this is a question that people have researched quite a lot, and NREL has spent millions of dollars researching just it, how true that is. And for the most part, it's not very true. For every 10,000 birds that are killed by man-made objects, there is uh, one half of one bird is killed by a wind turbine. If you if the if we really want to s- reduce the number of 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 bird kills, then we should really pay attention to the cats because cats are the biggest offender. And next are windows, uh, trucks, cars, uh, chemicals, uh, and frankly, it's much the the effluent from power plants, fossil uh, fuel power plants, is much more. Uh, uh, impacting on wildlife and particularly birds than than wind turbines. So, what we do these days is make sure that we we uh, uh, place wind farms in in uh, away from flyways, and this is all part of the pre-assessment process. So, out of uh, uh, three or four hundred wind farms in the U.S., there's one that has had a problem, and that's the Altamont Pass. Hmm. Okay, Sandy, we have uh, tons more questions here, but unfortunately we're, we're out of time. Uh, can you point our listeners to a, a website to learn more about your company? Well, for uh, Boulder Wind Power, you can dial up boulderwindpower.com. It's all one word. And uh, learn more about what we're doing. Okay, and the wind, uh, the NREL uh, Wind uh, Center, do they have a, a website? Uh, they certainly do. NREL has a wonderful wind site, and, uh, and NREL's wind site is nrel.gov. All right, that was Sandy Butterfield, Butterfield of Boulder Wind Power. Thanks, Sandy. Thank you very much, Tom. The
that's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show producer and engineer was Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Ted Burnham. Tim Morton wrote our theme music. Tom Lessinger produced it. Additional music from the Dirty Dozen Brass Band and Neil Young. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org. Podcasts of our show are available there or subscribe on iTunes. Questions? Comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Tom McKinnon. And I'm Joel Parker.